welcome to The Third Wheel. I'm Mel Debenham, a Land Access and Approvals Partner in Perth, and I'm joined by my co-host and governance guru, Tim Stutt, uh, from our Sydney office. Now, before I introduce our expert Third Wheel today, Tim, we've been hosting some ESG roundtables of late, um, and we had a really great discussion a couple of weeks ago um, with a bunch of national companies, different sizes, different sectors, um, which I don't know about you, um, but was a really interesting discussion of current challenges in this space. Now, this week in Perth, we followed up that conversation with a roundtable with some local clients. And again, uh, we had a great breadth of sectors and, um, and scale of businesses in the room. Um, and one of the lines of conversation I thought would be interesting to you, it's, it picked up on a bit of a theme from the National Roundtable, um, and it was around this idea of what does good look like um, and what is the journey of ESG? Um, and I know it's a bit trite um, to talk about it as a journey, but we, we spent quite a bit of time talking about, well, you know, the definitional ch challenges around good, organisations trying to lead um, but in circumstances where there's not, you know, a truly great benchmark to be holding your performance against? Um, and how do you actually know um, when you have reached the destination, so when you've achieved good? So um, the question that I have got for you is... I'm, I'm getting more and more nervous, nervous Mel. <laughs> <laughs> is it, but lay is it on it, me. A big question. No, I, I just thought um, I would bounce with you. Is ESG a journey that doesn't have a destination or is there a point to be reached? It's a good question. Uh, I think it is definitely a journey, um, as tried as it is to say that. I know that there is an allergic reaction to the, the the use of the J word from a number of stakeholders. Um, but I think part of that is because there is no definition of what good looks like. When I think about what ESG is at its core, it's about understanding and responding to the internal and external impacts of a business across environmental, social and governance dimensions. And I think in that respect, and with that as the, fra the, the frame of reference, actually, being good is being responsive and having processes to understand that and respond to that um, and anticipate anticipate risks and factor things into strategy. So I think there is a framework for what good looks like, but it is perhaps so amorphous that I'm not convinced that, uh, that too many people have completely got there yet. Um, and I think it will be an ongoing exercise evolving and adapting over time as well. Yeah, the, perhaps it's a... Uh, a destination of aspiration mm. um, and continuous improvement along that journey. I think I'd have a lot more free time if we did have one universal set of frameworks or uh, standards that we could apply as the definitive uh, delineation of what is good for ESG. Well, you know, that is a great segue into introducing our guest today, our expert third wheel, because part of the reason why we don't have a definitive set of standards is that court-made law is influencing um, what we need to do in this space. So 
Um, without further ado, I want to introduce Mark Smythe. Um, so Mark is a disputes partner. We won't hold that against him, um, but certainly a co-collaborator and conspirator with Tim and I on all things ESG. Um, his practice is broad, but he has a particular um, expertise in administrative law um, and climate litigation, um, both in terms of being directly involved in some of the litigation on foot at the moment, but also a very keen observer of what we're seeing out of the courts in Australia and internationally. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, Tim. Uh, excited to be here. And uh, I did have a little listen to a couple of the earlier podcasts in the series, and there were some, um, yeah, some pretty good third wheels on there. So uh, it'll be a bit of a hard act to follow. But uh, yeah, really keen to join you guys today. Great. And we are looking forward to this discussion. But before we get into the substance, um, we like to start each episode with a personal reflection. And so um, like we've asked our other third wheel expert guests, Mark, um, I'll ask you, why is ESG important and what does it mean to you? Thanks, Well, Yeah, it's it's a really uh, nice question. Um, I think, I mean, as you sort of alluded to in the intro, I am a little bit of an administrative law nerd. So um, for me, public law and also, you know, politics and public policy has already all been something that has really driven and interested me. Uh, and so for me, ESG uh, really tends to, I guess, involve um, helping companies to navigate some of the most significant environment, social political issues of the day uh, and doing so really through the nexus of maybe government legislation if, if new regulations being introduced uh, or, or through litigation when, when it ends up there. Um, so I think, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and what it means to me, I think um, many of the clients that we work with or, or even all of them are really committed to doing the right thing and behaving responsibly uh, in, in the ESG space and, and even being market leaders. Uh, but these can often be really um, contested and fraught issues to grapple with. And, and sometimes it doesn't always go uh, as, as we'd like it to. And so it's about helping people, our clients, to sort of navigate those really difficult issues and, and to be there when, when things don't go perfectly. And on, on theme for things not going perfectly, um, we were keen to get your thoughts at a macro level. What are some of the key litigation themes that you're seeing globally at the moment in relation to climate? Yeah, so, I mean, in, in ESG litigation generally, um, it's been uh, a really sort of interesting past few years and even the last 12 months or so has been um, quite fascinating, um, the, the sort of pace of development that we're seeing. So I think always litigation has been, you know, an important plank of the ESG risk landscape, something that uh, clients have had to grapple with. But I think we're seeing really an increasing reliance on it uh, in ESG generally, uh, you know, thinking about some of the uh, really important Me Too litigation, for example, uh, some, some really high profile human rights based claims in recent years, uh, even sort of safety and, and wage underpayment and discrimination claims. So litigation is being increasingly used as a tool in the ESG context. But 
I think, as you alluded to in the intro, really in the climate space, um, at a macro level, it's being litigation is being used increasingly. I think particularly um, by shareholders in many of our corporate clients, uh, but also third-party activists. And so in terms of what that means thematically, uh, a couple of different things. Uh, firstly, quite different from normal uh, commercial litigation that we might be, or at least I, I might deal with on a more day-to-day basis. Uh, so while monetary compensation can be an element of those kind of claims, really ESG litigation often involves broader objectives. So, you know, maybe achieving a particular uh, social or policy objective, bringing accountability or transparency to something, uh, or, or even affecting a change in a company's policy or, or a government's policy. And so that can make ESG litigation really uh, different from commercial litigation to manage and to, uh, to, to try to resolve in a way that um, works for everyone. I think then the sort of second key theme that, that comes out of it is, um, you know, who, who is on the receiving end of this litigation? So um, firstly, there's, you know, as we'll hopefully come on to a bit later, uh, quite a lot of activity against um, corporates. So, you know, there was the uh, successful claim earlier in the year against uh, Royal Dutch Shell in the Netherlands, um, the effect of which is that um, Shell has to reduce its CO2 emissions um, by net 45% um, by the end of 2030 relative to 2019, which is a, you know, a major impact on Shell's business. So we're seeing uh, claims directly against companies like that. Uh, but secondly, uh, government is on the receiving end of many of these claims uh, in a way that affects all of us, um, both as, you know, private individuals, but also uh, affects companies and firms that we work and act for. Um, so, you know, a, a really classic recent example of that is the uh, Heathrow runway challenge um, for the, the progression of the, the third runway at Heathrow, uh, where Friends of the Earth uh, challenged the uh, approval of the third runway, basically on the basis that uh, it didn't adequately take account of climate change um, impacts. Uh, ultimately, that litigation was successfully defended, but uh, it was successful at first instance and has had a substantial impact on how things have developed there. Uh, and in Australia, just in the last, uh, I think, two months, uh, there have been a number of cases uh, against different government bodies, so uh, a Commonwealth minister and then also the Environment Protection Agency in Victoria uh, for approvals decisions in the energy and resources context again, basically alleging that the government decision makers haven't adequately grappled with climate change and emissions implications. And so those sorts of proceedings are aimed uh, both at achieving a particular outcome in terms of maybe um, conditions or or results that are um, more uh, conducive to emissions reduction, Uh, but they can also have a significant uh, impact, as I mentioned at the beginning, in terms of raising awareness and really um, putting this uh, front and centre of the the political agenda. As well as corporates and governments, we've also seen, um, I know, quite a bit of litigation against um, investors and also lenders as well. 
Um, and some of these actions have really focused in on disclosure and um, alleged greenwashing, both both on the financial services side, but also on the corporate side. Mark, what sort of claims are we seeing coming through the courts? Yeah, so greenwashing litigation has become a major focus, um, particularly of the shareholder type actions and of the activist actions that uh, I was mentioning earlier. And, you know, really, as I said at the beginning, many companies, certainly most of our clients are really committed to taking action on climate change and to acting in a way which is really decisive, uh, addressing emissions, other broader environmental concerns, uh, and then, you know, making statements that reflect that intention. Uh, There's also, I think, secondly, a massive investor focus on this, uh, and in particular, investors Uh, both wanting uh, companies and financial institutions to make those sort of green commitments, uh, but then also ensuring really that, um, you know, that those commitments are then operationalised and then followed through with. Uh, So I think that's the sort of rub or the tension that we're seeing that is uh, leading to the the kind of litigation that you you mentioned. Uh, One of the most prominent examples is probably in the US uh, proceedings brought by several US states and uh, investors uh, against Exxon for uh, alleged misrepresentations in the proxy cost of carbon that it was using to value its reserves and to assess future projects. Uh, So the alleged result of that was that the company was intentionally overstating the value of its reserves uh, understating the climate change impacts and, and the regulatory risks that would follow. So that's one key plank of uh, greenwashing type risks that we see. Uh, in, in Australia as well, there's been uh, a recent spate of cases. So uh, proceedings have been commenced against the Commonwealth government uh, and, and alleging that um, investor information statements and other disclosures uh, for Australian government bonds are misleading or deceptive because, again, they don't adequately disclose Australia's climate change risk. Uh, Secondly, thinking on the corporate side, uh, recently proceedings have been commenced in the federal court uh, in Australia, alleging that a company's net zero target is misleading or deceptive. And the basis of that action is that uh, because this is a representation allegedly about a future matter, the company lacked reasonable grounds for its net zero target and and pathway. Uh, And and then finally, uh, another recent proceeding in Australia, again in the federal court, uh, commenced against a, a bank in respect of its green lending commitments. And uh, the the proceedings are brought by a shareholder uh, seeking documents about the company's uh, operational efforts to uh, carry through with its uh, public statements about uh, its green lending commitments and the way in which it would assess uh, emissions impacts of um, projects in which uh, it was involved in in financing. I think the, the second prong of your question, Tim, was around sort of regulatory activity and in addition to all of this litigation uh, for, for greenwashing um, allegations, there's also a core focus of this from regulators around the globe. So uh, core jurisdictions, including the US, UK, Europe, Hong Kong, Australia. And it's really one 
of, of the major focuses for um, a lot of the um, corporate and financial institutions regulators. So ASIC in particular uh, has started to take a more active uh, approach in this space. So in its uh, recent September corporate update, it said that it had intervened in an energy company's IPO uh, seeking clarification about net zero greenhouse gas emission statements that led to refinements in, in those claims and also additional disclosures around, you know, how that might be achieved. Uh, and then again, um, this year, ASIC announced that it was reviewing uh, both managed and uh, superannuation investment funds to assess whether their investment strategies were, you know, as green or ESG focused as, as is being claimed in uh, a lot of uh, disclosure statements. Uh, and ASIC has sort of foreshadowed potential action, um, issued correspondence, et cetera, to a number of firms in that space. Uh, so um, in, in summary, the greenwashing issue, I think, is one that will continue to arise. Um, it's a strategy uh, that is being used by uh, activists, but it's also a matter that is of core concern to investors. And so I think that sort of regulatory activity and uh, and, and litigation is likely to continue. Mark, it wouldn't be a uh, pod talking about litigation and court-made law without referring to Sharma um, and, and the the ripple effect that the Sharma has uh, Sharma decision has had in terms of regulatory decision-making processes. So, um, for any listeners that um, aren't familiar with Sharma. It's a decision relating to uh, the Environmental Protection Act from a Commonwealth perspective um, and essentially the court reading into quite a comprehensive decision-making process an additional duty of care that relates to climate change. Um, so that decision, um, the first instance decision, has been appealed. Mark, what are you hearing about Sharma? Um, I'm hearing a lot about it from discussions with clients and regulators, uh, but what's happening in the courts on that front? Well, that is um, really timely, and I don't think this was planned at all. Uh, but over the last few days, uh, the uh, full federal court has been uh, considering the appeal in Sharma. So uh, following the decision earlier this year of Justice Bromberg uh, in, in May, uh, the Commonwealth uh, announced that it was appealing. Uh, so that appeal came on uh, earlier this week. Uh, it was before uh, Chief Justice Allsop, Justices Beach and Wheelerhan uh, for three days. And essentially the Commonwealth was arguing against the very existence of this novel duty of care that you described, Mel, uh, on, on a number of different bases. Uh, the first primary basis was uh, on effectively separation of powers grounds that it's not appropriate for the court to step in here and develop a whole new novel of novel duty of care owed to uh, young people in respect of climate change, uh, that that is a function of the legislature. Uh, you know, it's uh, a highly politically charged matter, uh, a matter that is the subject of uh, international agreements and negotiation uh, and has been at the forefront of, of politics in Australia. And so in those circumstances, really, it's for Parliament rather than uh, the common law to be intervening to find a solution. Uh, and so that in, in doing so and finding an, a novel duty of care here, 
uh, which is obviously different from an administrative law matter, you know, for example, suggesting that it's a relevant consideration, this is a, a novel private law duty of care that the minister owes, that, that something like that really would inhibit the minister in the exercise of her powers uh, and really constrain um, normal um, principles of administrative law and how the minister would go about making her decision. The second uh, prong or primary prong of the Commonwealth's uh, arguments in the appeal focused on uh, really whether or not the degree of control uh, in terms of the duty of care was actually in existence. So, uh, you know, as you know, for the existence of um, new tortious duty of care, uh, there needs to be a sufficient degree of control that, um, that you know, the, the defendant has over the conduct. Uh, the people affected need to be reasonably foreseeable class, etc. And the Commonwealth took issue here with whether or not that was truly the case for the minister's approval decision. Uh, in particular, there was debate about whether it's appropriate to consider scope three emissions, which are obviously the emissions over which um, over which you know, Whitehaven here uh, would not have control. Um, whether or not it's really appropriate to consider those as within the minister's control, um, particularly uh, where what's actually occurring there would be happening in, in foreign jurisdictions and it would be difficult for any conditions which the minister might impose on the licence to effectively uh, govern and, and constrain those emissions. So a particularly interesting line of attack, scope three emissions, as we know, is a really vexed issue for uh, companies to deal with. And so here uh, the Commonwealth was directly uh, engaging with that and saying, you know, the complexities around the regulation of scope three emissions mean that, you know, that's another reason why it's not appropriate to uh, impose uh, a duty of care regulating them. Thanks for sharing those insights. Um, it's fantastic to um, be able to share that with our listeners, um, particularly ahead of any decision being made by the court. Um, I know there will be all eyes watching um, the comments of the court around Scope 3 because the extent to which Scope 3 emissions are a relevant consideration within environmental impact assessment processes is um, a live question um, for many regimes, not just the Commonwealth environmental legislation. So um, I, for one, anxiously await a decision from the court in that regard. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I think we'll have to have you back once the Sharma decision uh, has been handed down and um, we understand a little bit more about the trajectory of other cases before courts at the minute. Now, like every pod, um, we like to end on a light note. Tim, I think that we could do some rapid fire acronym busting. Are you up for the challenge? You should maybe wait until I answer each of them um, but, and determine that for yourself, Mel, but sure. That's fine. Help me in. Great. So um, ESG is an acronym and the space is filled with them. Um, so let's throw a couple of climate-related acronyms at Tim and, and see how we go. <laughs> COP26. Oh, Mel, that would be the uh, 26th meeting of climate-oriented persons. 
Or, yes. or if I'm being a bit more accurate, it's the 26th Conference of the Parties, the conference being the UN Climate Change Conference. And this year it's going to be held in Glasgow and it is kicking off very shortly. Ding, ding. I need some kind of um, you are correct buzzer. Yes, that's COP26. And we will be bringing you um, some podcast content, hopefully from the conference very soon. NDC. That would be notionally definitive climate commitments, climate commitments. Uh, or if I'm being more serious, it would be nationally determined contributions, yes. which require nations to make uh, to make action plans to tackle climate change. Okay, the next one I think will be close to your heart, Tim. TCFD. Very close to my heart uh, and constantly in my mind. It's the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. Okay, last one for you. ICMYI. That is a vexing one. Uh, <laughs> I'm tricky. Non-climate-related, I'm going to call it, in case you missed it. Yes. Uh, I am a good millennial and very up with the acronyms. Uh <laughs> I think I'm still stuck in the 90s. I didn't know what that one was. Um, thank you, uh, Mark, again for your time. And thanks, everyone, for listening in to the Third Wheel podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks, ESGS. In the spirit of reconciliation, Herbert Smith Free Hills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.